All right, Ezekiel chapter 18 is where we are today. I'm going to read the first part of chapter 18 and then the majority of the last part of chapter 18. But let's start in verse 1. Ezekiel 18 verse 1 says, The word of the Lord came to me again, Ezekiel writing, saying, What do you mean when you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge? As I live, says the Lord God, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. Jump down to verse 21. Ezekiel 18, verse 21. But if a wicked man turns from all his sins which he has committed, keeps all my statutes and does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions which he has committed shall be remembered against him. Because of the righteousness which he has done, he shall live. Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? But when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity, and does according to all the abominations that the wicked man does, shall he live? All the righteousness which he has done shall not be remembered." Because of the unfaithfulness of which he is guilty and the sin which he has committed, because of them he shall die. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not fair. Hear now, O house of Israel, is not my way which is fair, and your ways which are not fair? When a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, commits iniquity, and dies in it, it is because of the iniquity which he has done that he dies. Again, when a wicked man turns away from the wickedness which he committed... And does what is lawful and right, he preserves himself alive. Because he considers and turns away from all the transgressions which he committed, he shall surely live, he shall not die. Yet the house of Israel says, the way of the Lord is not fair. O house of Israel, is it not my ways which are fair, and your ways which are not fair? Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, says the Lord God. Repent, and turn from all your transgressions so that iniquity will not be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed, and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. Let's pause there and pray. Lord, we commit our Bible study to you. We're thankful for your love and your word, which is truth. Even though this is a story that is ancient, we thank you that your word is timeless and relevant even for our day. So use it now to open the eyes of our hearts that we might respond to the truth of your word and receive these things personally for us today. We love you and we give you glory, honor, and praise in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. For those of you who might be new to the study of Ezekiel, the context of our story is this. The Jewish people have been banished by God from Israel to Babylonia to spend 70 years in a timeout because of their sin and rebellion against God. So God has allowed them to be transported, to be uh, uh, overtaken by the Babylonian Empire, and their new home now is by the rivers of Babylon, by the Euphrates and the Tigris, in what is today modern Iraq. 
Uh, They've brought it upon themselves. They were warned time and time again, but they didn't heed the warnings. And so they rebelled against God. They worshiped false idols. They didn't worship the true and living God. And now they're in Babylonia and they're going to spend 70 years there. Ezekiel, one of the Jews among them, has been raised up by God as a prophet in Babylonia, along with the captives uh, of Israel, there to challenge them and there to encourage them and to speak into their lives. And what we find here in chapter 18 is that the, the Jewish people are looking at their circumstances in Babylonia, and they have two objections with God. And these two objections are addressed here in chapter 18, and here they are. They're basically in Babylonia saying, it's not my fault, and God is not fair. It's not my fault that I'm here, I shouldn't be here, and God's not fair. You know, isn't this something, because when when people from time to time say to me, you know, Pastor Gary, isn't the Bible just a really old book with just a bunch of old stories? And I'm I'm like, listen, you haven't read it, because if you don't realize how timeless this truth is, man, you, you don't read it. Because this speaks to our own culture today, right? It's not my fault, and God's not fair. This is what is being spoken of by the Jewish people here in chapter 18, and God's going to address both these issues. The first thing that we see here uh, at the beginning of chapter 18 is this issue with them saying, it's not my fault. Uh, They are quoting a proverb in the day that goes like this. Notice again in your Bibles, verse 2. They quote this proverb, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Now, it's, it's called a proverb, not because it's a wise saying, like the book of Proverbs in your Bibles are filled with truisms, wise sayings from the Lord. It's referred to as a proverb simply because it's commonly repeated. Uh, in that day, it is said over and over again. And by the way, saying something over and over again doesn't necessarily make it true. We all understand that, right? There are certain proverbs that we say in our day over and over again aren't necessarily true. Uh, for example, a few proverbs that we say in our day, like this one. Uh, if it doesn't kill you, it'll make you stronger. You know that proverb. Everybody goes around saying that. If it doesn't kill you, it'll make you stronger. What it should really say is, if it doesn't kill you, it's going to make you really, really sick. If it doesn't kill you, it might give you hepatitis, all right? You may not die, but you're going to get really, really sick. I had a friend of mine who always went around saying that. If it doesn't kill me, it'll make me stronger. If it doesn't kill me, it'll make me stronger. One day, he decided to go into the refrigerator, eat, eat a carton of yogurt that he knew had an expiration date a month old. He said, well, what could it harm me? But if it doesn't kill me, it'll make me stronger. You know, it's all bacteria cultures anyway. Oh, oh, it harmed him. Oh, oh, he spent the next several hours over a toilet. It harmed him, all right. How about this statement? The customer is always right. Now, everybody who's a customer loves that. Those of you who work in customer service just groaned. We heard you. Because the customer's not always right. Where did we come up with this? But it's a proverb we go around saying. Here's another one. Journalists love this one. The pen is mightier than the sword. The pen is mightier than the sword. That's because that journalist has never been in combat. Can you imagine some commanding officer like, all right, listen, guys. Guys, we're going to go take the hill. We're going to charge the hill. Remember, no man left behind. And when you, when you run out of ammunition, just take a pen. It's, it's mightier than a sword. You're going to be fine. Or this one, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Well, 
Fine, then I guess you won't mind me saying that you're stupid for believing that. (laughs) Words do hurt. But we go around saying things that have become common proverbs that aren't necessarily true. This is what they're doing here in this day. And the proverb they're quoting there again in verse 2, Fathers have eaten sour grapes, the children's teeth are set on edge. Now the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, the Septuagint translates the phrase, the children's teeth are set on edge, as they suffer pain in the teeth. Meaning... The kids got a toothache because mom and dad were eating too many sour grapes. Or another way of saying it is, mom and dad ate too much candy and the kids got the cavities. This was the proverb they were quoting as a way to deflect responsibility. This was a way to shift the blame. Mom and dad have done some things and the only reason that we're in the mess we're in is because mom and dad. We're not really at fault. We're not really responsible. It's not my fault. And this is the saying that they would go around quoting in order to absolve themselves of personal responsibility. And every generation was quoting this, generation after generation. So they're basically saying, it's not my fault. You know, I I only worshipped idols because mom and dad worshipped idols. It's not my fault. I only sacrificed to these false gods because mom and dad sacrificed to these false gods. And it plays out in our day in a similar way. You know, I'm a cheat because my dad was a cheat. I'm an alcoholic because mom was an alcoholic. I have a bad temper because dad had a bad temper. I lie a little bit because mom lied a little bit. Listen, I I get it. We all get it, don't we? The, The influence of mom and dad is real. But let me say something to you. The influence of God is greater. The influence of God is greater. And at some point, we have to stand up and take responsibility for our lives and stop blaming mom and dad. We're living in a generation that wants to blame everybody. Last time I checked, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, in Christ, you're a new creation. So how about you take responsibility for your life and you start to hand down a new heritage, a different heritage to your children, right? This is what God does in our lives. And, and all this blame shifting gets us nowhere. It just perpetuates this cycle of blame. This is why God says in verse 3 of our text, As I live, says the Lord God, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. As I live, that is a statement in the Hebrew that means an oath is taken. And when God says, as I live, he's swearing an oath and he's swearing it by himself because there is no one greater and nothing higher than himself. So he says, as I live, it would be like the way we say, uh, you know, in common expression, we're like, you know, I swear, I swear, if you do that one more time, I'm going to kick you to the curb. You know, when when we start a sentence like that, I swear, it's like we're taking an oath, like we're really serious about this. This is what God is saying. As I live... He's swearing by himself because there's nothing and no one higher than himself. He says, do not quote this proverb in Israel anymore. Everybody's going around saying, it's not my fault. And they're blaming somebody else. God says, I want you to stop saying that. Now, objection number one, it's not my fault, dovetails into objection number two. God is not fair. Here's why. Because you see, if they feel like they're living in Babylonia as a result of God's punishment... 
but they feel like that they are only there in Babylonia because they're only following what mom and dad taught them, and so they don't think they're at fault, then naturally, if they look at their circumstances and they don't like where they are, and they feel like God's punishing them, and they think that God's punishing them for something that they're not at fault concerning, well, then naturally they think God's not fair. God's not fair. I shouldn't even be here in Babylonia. My parents are at fault. They're the ones who taught me to do what I did. And therefore, I'm in a mess here. And God, you're not fair. So this is the second issue that God is going to address here. And he addresses it in verse 25 and again in verse 29. Look at verse 25. He says, yet you say, the way of the Lord is not fair. Hear now, O house of Israel. Is it not my way which is fair? And your ways, which are not fair? Now, here's why God is saying that their ways are not fair. Because the people were basically saying that they want to live however they want to live. They want to blame whoever they want to blame. And they want to get away with whatever they can get away with. And say, that's fair. Wait a minute, wait a minute. God's saying... Isn't your way the way that's not fair? You're going around saying we want to live however we want to live. We want to blame whoever we want to blame. And we want to get away with whatever we want to get away with. And we think that that's fair. God's saying that's not fair. And no reasonable person would think that that life is fair. I just want to live however I want, blame whoever I can, and get away with whatever I can. That's not, that's not fair. And so God is saying here, you're the ones really who are living an unfair life. Isn't it? Instead, beyond fair of God, when he says in this chapter, basically summarizing it, whoever takes responsibility for his or her sins and turns from them and turns to God, whoever does this, they will be forgiven. And they will be given a new heart and a new spirit. And God will not hold their past against them. Isn't that better than fair? That's beyond fair. Where else does this exist? Where else can you commit the crime and not have to do the time because you own it, really mean that you're sorry, except with God? God is the one who acknowledges our sorrow, who is merciful to us. Who forgives us when we don't deserve it. That's beyond fair. And if you're not amazed at his grace, it's because you haven't lived long enough to regret some things in your life. All right? For anybody who's lived long enough to regret some things in your life, you are amazed at the grace of God. Are you not? God's grace is amazing. He is beyond fair. So he calls out the Jewish people says, you, you think you're fair? Let, 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 let's get this straight. You want to live however you want. You want to blame everybody for your mistakes, your sins, your faults. And then you want to get away with anything and everything. That's not fair. No, fairness is owning up, taking responsibility, acknowledging our sin, and then appealing to the mercy of God and experiencing his grace and his forgiveness. And God will not hold our past against us. Now, Since, as I said at the opening of the Bible study, our society is much like the days of Ezekiel, even though we're 2,500 years following, I think you would agree with me that, in general, there are a lot of people in our culture today who have a low view on personal responsibility and 
a high view on blaming God for not being fair. And so we can learn some things from this chapter. Let's understand a few things from chapter 18 about how God is better than fair. That's the title of this teaching, how God is better than fair. Here's the first thing we need to understand from chapter 18 to get a a realistic uh, approach to the whole topic. Uh, Number one is that every soul belongs to God. Every soul belongs to God and thus we are all accountable to him. If you look back at the beginning of chapter 18 at verse 4, God makes a simple statement right out of the gate. Verse 4, behold, all souls are mine. All souls are mine. The word soul in the Hebrew is nephesh. It means living, breathing being. And God is basically saying here at the beginning that every living, breathing being belongs to God. That God establishes at the beginning of this chapter here, his rightful ownership of every single life. He is the author of life. He is the giver of life. He is the sustainer of life. He is the Lord of life. And God predetermines, did you know this, every single day of your life before the first one came to be. God is ruler over life. And every single soul belongs to him. Which is why, by the way, It is a sinful thing in the taking of an innocent life. Because whenever we take an innocent life, we are taking something that belongs exclusively to God, that He alone is entitled to give and take life. And since every life belongs to God, then every life is also accountable to God. When we sin against Him, and everybody does, if we deny our sin or blame others for our sin, then we will be condemned for our sin. But, on the other hand, if we acknowledge our sin and repent of our sin, then God is merciful to us and will forgive us. Look at verse 30. This will lead into point number 2. Verse 30 there in chapter 18. Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, says the Lord God. Repent. Circle that in your Bible. Repent and turn from all your transgressions so that iniquity will not be your ruin. Repent is the word that is used there in verse 30. It's point number two. Repentance is the pathway to mercy. Repent means to change the course of one's life because you're sorry over sin. And so you do an about face. Repent is, is basically you're going in one direction away from God towards sin. And repent means you turn from sin and turn towards God. It's 180 degrees in the opposite direction. The word repent is used more than 100 times in your Bibles. And it's not just exclusive to the Old Testament. It's also very much in the New Testament. In fact, the very first word recorded spoken by John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3 verse 2. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Likewise, the very first word recorded from Jesus, recorded in Matthew 4, verse 17, it says, From that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The apostle Peter preached a great evangelistic sermon on the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 3, verse 19, his lead word, Repent, therefore. And be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Repent. 
It's an important word we must recapture in our vocabulary. In 1937, the American Track Society sponsored a contest in which they offered a prize of $1,000, which was big money in 1937. They offered $1,000 for the best new book written on one of the, quote, essential evangelical doctrines of the Christian faith. American Tract Society, 1937, $1,000. Whoever can come up with the best book related to the essential doctrine of the Christian faith. Dr. Harry Ironside won the contest. Dr. Ironside was the pastor of Moody Memorial Church in Chicago for many years. And the title of his book that won the contest was Accept Ye Repent. And it was taken from the words of Jesus recorded in Luke 13, verse 3. In the King James Version, Jesus said, Accept ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. And so Dr. Ironside entitled his book, Accept Ye Repent. Let me quote for you the first sentence from Dr. Ironside's introduction of that book in 1937. Quote, Fully convinced in my own mind that the doctrine of repentance is the missing note in many otherwise orthodox and fundamentally sound circles today, I have penned this volume out of a full heart. End quote. Repentance, he says, is the missing note in many otherwise sound churches. And my friends, if that was so in 1937, how much more true is it today? Some churches aren't talking about repentance. They don't like that word. The modern church today doesn't often talk about repentance. The modern church today, instead of saying repentance, preaches tolerance. That's what the modern church is preaching today. Tolerance instead of repentance. Because repentance confronts sin. Tolerance either denies it or redefines it altogether. Tolerance is a message that basically will make you feel good in the moment, but will not liberate anybody. Tolerance is basically the message in replacement of repentance, which is an illusion that no one needs changing. That God accepts you just as you are, that he made you just as you are, and he's fine with you just as you are. No change necessary. Repentance, on the other hand, requires an honest assessment of one's life against the standard of God's unchanging truth. And where my life falls short of that perfect standard of God, that's called sin. And it requires my repentance to get right with God. And when we do, here's the good news. This is the most liberating news, friends. When we get right with God by repenting, turning from sin and turning towards God, He not only forgives us, He remembers our sins no more. He remembers our sins no more. The slate is wiped clean. The record of offenses and crimes have been expunged. He tells us this. Look further. This is point number three for those of you taking notes. God not only forgives our sins, he remembers them no more. Look at verses 21 and 22. 
He says, but if a wicked man turns from all his sins, which he has committed, that's repent, keeps all my statutes and does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions which he has committed shall be remembered against him. Now, it's not that God is forgetful. God doesn't forget anything. He knows all things. But what it literally means is that he chooses to no longer hold our sins against us. And he doesn't revisit the past with us. It's gone as far as God is concerned. This is consistent with other places in the Bible. Hebrews 8 verse 12. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. Jeremiah 31 34. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. When we repent, nothing about our past is revisited by God. Don't you wish that other people treated you the same way God treats you? Hmm? Don't you wish that the people that you had wronged would not only say, I forgive you, but forget about it, right? I'm never going to bring this up again. I'm never going to remind you. I'm never going to drudge up the past. That's what God does with us. Don't you wish your friends, don't look at somebody next to you. Don't you wish your spouse treated you the same way? Whenever I do a wedding ceremony, I will always quote and read through 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's the love chapter. And in the middle of 1 Corinthians 13, there's this verse that says, love keeps no record of wrongs. And as I'm reading through that in a marriage ceremony, and the couple's like, you know, they're looking at each other like, oh, it's so special, it's so wonderful. And they're not, they're not hearing a thing I'm saying. They're just looking at each other. Oh, this is so great. Yeah, I just can't wait for the honeymoon, all the stuff. Okay, all right. I get to 1 Corinthians 13 at that verse, love keeps no record of wrongs. And I stop, I stop, and I stop right there. And I say, now listen, I'm going to repeat this again. And then they look at me. Love keeps no record of wrongs. And they're looking at me. And I said, listen, there's going to be the tendency that both of you from time to time are going to get historical. They look at me, they're like, don't you mean hysterical? I mean historical. You're going to want to bring up the history. You're going to want to bring up the past. Love keeps no record of wrongs. This is our father. He's better than fair. He's better than fair. Psalm 103, 11 to 12. For as the heavens are higher above the earth, so great is his love, his mercy towards those who fear him. For as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. He's better than fair. Lastly, number four. God is for us and doesn't want any to die separated from him. Notice here in this same chapter, verse 23. He asks a rhetorical question. God does. Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? He repeats it at the end of the chapter. Look at the very last verse, verse 32. For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, notice his pleading, turn, repent, turn, and live. The Lord will speak this again in chapter 33, verse 11. You don't need to turn, but you can just jot it down. Ezekiel 33, 11, I'll read it to you. God says, say to them, Ezekiel, say to them, as I live. He uses that oath statement again, as I live. Says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, 
but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. For why should you die, O house of Israel? See, it's not enough that God simply feels badly for those who are unrepentant towards him. He actually did something about it. 2,000 years ago, Jesus dies on a cross. This is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. In other words, 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ died for the sins of the world. He satisfied the wrath of God and assumed the punishment that was intended for us. Though he had committed no sin, he took the penalty for our sin and suffered in our place. It's the story of the great exchange. He who knew no sin became sin for us that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. Something undeserved, something clearly unearned that God did for us. And all we have to do in response is own up, accept responsibility, repent, and believe by faith that what Jesus Christ did on that cross to redeem us is enough. That's why Jesus said it's finished. You can't improve upon this. God made a way where there was no way to bring us to him. Why? Because he's better than fair. It's the love of God for us. He went above and beyond to win us for him. Do you know him? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for how ancient words are so relevant for our day. There are a lot of people who think it's not my fault. We're not at fault. We didn't do anything wrong. And a lot of people who also think that you're not fair. Lord, I pray if anybody feels those things hearing this Bible study that today they would surrender those lies. They would recognize that we're all at fault because we're all sinners. We all fall short of your perfect standard. There's none righteous, no, not one. Help us, Lord, may we stop blaming people, blaming society, blaming generational things or whatever we might have used in the past to justify or excuse our own lives. May we take ownership and responsibility and repent and turn to you. You're more than fair. You provided a way for us to be liberated and set free from shame and guilt and sin and bondage and addiction. If we would just humble ourselves and come to you, we can be free. We can be forgiven. Our hearts can be cleansed. We can be right with you. Thank you, Lord, that you love us so much that you gave your son Jesus to die for us. To do for us what we could not do for ourselves. To make ourselves right with you. I pray, Lord, for those who are here today that have never surrendered their life to you. May today be a day where they're set free. May today be a day when they're forgiven. Their hearts and their minds washed over. By you, the one who does not revisit our sins, but forgives us as far as the east is from the west. 
who remembers our sins no more, who casts them into the depths of the sea, never to be drudged up again because of what Christ has done for us. I'm going to pause in my prayer and I'm going to invite you, if you don't know that freedom that I'm talking about, if you don't know that forgiveness that you can have in Christ, then I'm going to just lead in a simple word of prayer. And right where you're seated, you can pray this prayer with me. You can invite Christ into your life. You can receive his forgiveness today. Just right where you're seated, you can pray this prayer with me. You can whisper it. I'll go slowly. Just say this. Just say, Lord Jesus, I repent of my sins. I turn from the path that I'm on. And I turn towards you. I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I take responsibility for my life. No more blaming others. I own my sin today, Lord. But I thank you that you died for it on a cross. It was nailed there with you 2,000 years ago. So right now, I receive your forgiveness. Set me free from my past. Set me free for what holds me captive. Liberate me, Lord, from the bondage of sin. I surrender my life to you today. Give me a new heart and a new spirit that I might live for you and glorify you in my life. Thank you for loving me and dying for me. I praise you in Jesus' name for the free gift of eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. In whose name I pray. And everybody said, Amen.